Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. Thanks for giving us a listen. This is the show where we talk to properly successful published authors all about their working day in the hope that some of the secrets of their schedule can help sort out our own. Now this week we are chatting to Ben Schott, he of Schott's Almanac and Miscellany fame, uh, the trove of landmarks, quirk and trivia. You might know him from there. And now he's back with his first proper novel. It's an homage to P.G. Woodhouse. It's called Jeeves and the King of Clubs. And it's a big undertaking. You know, many have tried and many have failed to capture the magic of what loads of people perceive to be one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Now, we'll talk about why he's really a designer rather than a writer. Also, how a long train journey through New Jersey gave him the inspiration for his story. And we'll learn about why he thinks the perfect writing situation, it's its just not possible. Know how you work best and don't fake it, don't pretend you can be different. I think people, when it comes to creative projects, they think of how they ought to be. Oh, I ought to have a beautiful room with a clean desk and a vase of flowers and a sharpened pencil and a beautiful pad, and that's how I write. And actually, this notion that there has to be perfect conditions for writing, I think sets a lot of people back, because who has a perfect life? So stick around, that's on the way with this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, hello. Thanks for finding Writer's Routine. My name is Dan Simpson. Uh, We'll take a little look inside the daily diary of Ben in just a second. He's a special guest this week. First, um, I really want to help you out with your own working day. You see, the fantastic folk over at Scrivener, they are supporting this show for the whole of November. And if you're writing, and if you want something more useful than a standard word processor or an ominously intimidating blank page of A4, uh, you need to get involved with Scrivener. I promise it's a writing software that takes all the best features of the rest of them that are out there and it chucks them for you in one place. Now, it was made by someone, a proper writer, who couldn't find what he needed to help him work, uh, so he made something from scratch. It's everything that every author needs, I promise. It's got a corkboard on there that you can plan, that you can plot, that you can chop, that you can organise on. You can use it for extensive research and note-making. It'll finally, I think, be the death of those exhausting 
um, sheets of paper that you've probably got in your office right now spread all over the places. Maybe you've got a big whiteboard against one of the walls with post-it notes and multicoloured threads that are dragged all over the place. Well, Scrivener, fingers crossed, is the death of all of those. Uh, It gives everything that every writer needs. Everything except that first idea. You'll never need to be scared of looking at a blank page again because it's so fluid you can just click somewhere else and you can start working on another part of your story. Now, I'm serious here. Uh, I know we're being supported by Scrivener. Uh, I'm telling you the truth. Whenever, whenever I've spoken to a proper author all about writing softwares, Scrivener is the first thing that they tell me about. They all use it. It all helps them with their working day. And that's why it's amazing for them to sponsor the show and you can get 20% off Scrivener. You can even download a free trial so you can have a play, you can see how much it helps you out, see how good it is, and then you can grab the whole thing. All you need to do is give Scrivener a search online. You can head to literatureandlatte.com, type in the code ROUTINE, R-O-U-T-I-N-E, when you're checking out, and then you'll save 20% on Scrivener. And I think that your writing day will forevermore uh, be so much easier. This week on Writer's Routine, we're taking a sneak peek inside the diary of Ben Schott. Uh, Ben is a journalist, he's a designer, a photographer, a public speaker. Honestly, just having a look at his website alone makes me intensely jealous. He's got the creativity of of 10 people, let alone one. Uh, In 2005, he released his first almanac, which gave a practical and entertaining analysis of the year's events. And the miscellany which made his name started life as a Christmas card as well. You can find out the ridiculous story of how he got those published in just a sec. Now, his new book is actually his first novel. It's called Jeeves and the King of Clubs, and it's an homage to P.G. Woodhouse. Now, Woodhouse is someone that some people call the greatest comedic writer ever. And laying my own cards on the table, I'm one of those people. So this is such a fun chat. It's a big task, though, you know, leaping into the world of Bertie Wooster's Mayfair. So we'll talk about how he gave himself the best possible chance of succeeding uh, in a little or not failing is how he describes it. Uh, We'll learn more about that in just a sec. Also, we'll talk about why he doesn't think that writing routines are much cop at all which is brilliant news for a show all about writing routines. Uh, We'll chat about the machine as well that helped him design the plan that he used to write his story. Now, we'll get a top writing tip in just a sec from one of the most successful authors working today. And I've got a way that you can win around $2,000 worth of book marketing for your story. That's on the way after we jump into our chat with Ben Schott. And we start, as always, with the place where he usually sits down to write. Most of my best writing is done in bed in the early morning. So I'm surrounded by bed and duvet and a large cafeteria of coffee and my laptop and um, a Word document. Without being crude, what's the bed like? (laughs) Um, It's, I have, luckily enough to have two beds. I have a bed in London, I have a bed in New York. um, And um, one of them is uh, just a plain bed and the other one is covered in chalk stripe window pane suiting fabric there was a moment of madness many years ago when i had a bed made for me uh, okay um <laughs> by savoy beds this is not an advert but they do make very good beds 
I'm trying to think of a situation or a moment in my life where I would think I need to get a bed made for me. Well, okay, so I had that's a very, the very decadence. It is. It's very decadent. I had a very. This is really off topic, but that's okay. I had a very uh, annoying, uh, creaky bed, and I needed a, a, a bed. But where I live is very narrow. It's a. It's a Georgian house, but tiny. It's very sort of small, but tiny, windy, and I couldn't get a large bed in there. So I actually had to go to a company and make them to make the bed in three parts. Normally they make it in like the left and the right, but actually made it like left and right and then the end piece to make it long enough. Anyway, it, it's one of those things that it seems like a good idea at the time. And then six months later and thousands of pounds later, you're like, why did I embark on this madness? It's like temper tessellation, temper tetris, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it was one of those things. And um, it felt a bit like a D- D- Douglas Adams novel in the sense that I'm never going to get it out again. I just have to then just, you know, knock the entire building down. Anyway. Well, let's stay in your bedroom for a, a brief moment. Again, I don't, I don't want to be too uh, forward, wa- post-watershed, but are, are you, you're in your pyjamas at this point? Uh, yes. <laughs> Where's this going? No, what, what can you see around you? What's on the walls? What's out the window? Uh, well, actually, in both locations, I have trees outside my window, except in my London flat, which is very small, not, you know, but there was a beautiful tree and they just knocked it down. So now I can see a totally different view. It's actually quite disconcerting to have a view that you've been used to for 20 years. And then I came back and I opened the windows one morning and I was like, there's something wrong with this picture, which is the enormous tree that was outside my window was gone. And it took me a good moment or two to realise what had happened. The show's called Writer's Routine. Talk us through yours then, Ben. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day where you are writing, leave no boring stone, what you might perceive to be boring stone unturned. I promise it will be useful. Well, the first thing to say is I don't have a routine and I don't believe in routines. And I actually, I think for aspiring writers out there, and I consider myself an aspiring writer, um, I think the notion of a routine and the kind of infographics you see online about, you know, famous writers and their writing routines. It's like Jane Austen wrote between four and seven and and she wrote 3,000 words a day and had a cup of tea at four. I think, A, I'm incredibly suspicious of them. And B, I think they are incredibly unhelpful. I think... I mean, let's not forget, T.S. Eliot was a bank clerk when he wrote. Magnus Mills, one of my famous, f- favourite authors, not famous enough authors, uh, is, was and is still a, a bus driver and writes the most incredibly elegant novels. And so I think there's this idea of routines and structure that I don't really know many authors who really do that. And I think they sort of... I'm not sure they lie, but I think it's one of those things. They answer the question, oh, well, I try and do 4,000 words a week or 1,000 words a day. Anyway, that's not me. So I get up, I make coffee, I go back to bed, and I write. And I, 80% of my writing is rewriting. And um, so often I will go back and read things I've written the day before or the week before. And it is a process of you know, three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. Everything I write... And it's, so it's, it's just this constant process. And normally on a writing day or a day where I don't have to do anything else, um, I probably do sort of 70% rewriting and 30% new writing, unless I'm on a jag. And, you know, so the, 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 my new book, um, uh, which is a, uh, uh, Jeeves and Worcester, an authorized homage to Woodhouse, is great because there are these little scenes, these set pieces. And once you get into a scene and you have this dialogue going, you just want to write and write and write and write. And you look up and it's like, oh my God, I should probably maybe wash today. I mean, it's really not nice. I mean, sometimes it's like walking through treacle and you just, you know, you poke around a bit at a project and you just walk away. Um, I tell you what, the one thing is I'm always 
early. So I delivered, I mean, we had a very tight deadline for this book for various complex reasons of timing, so it fit their schedule. And I delivered this novel two months early, which terrified, I mean, people just thought it was an error because I always, I don't work well to deadlines. And I think, again, one of the other cliches is, you know, authors only work on deadlines and some authors do. Douglas Adams famously, his favorite sound was the noise of a deadline whooshing past him. but I don't, and I know myself, and I'd much rather be early and organized and have lots of time because I, I don't think creatively under a deadline. So I think it comes down to know thyself, um, know how you work best, and don't fake it. Don't pretend you can be different. I think people, when it comes to creative projects, they think of how they ought to be oh, I ought to have a beautiful room with a clean desk and a vase of flowers and a sharpened pencil and a beautiful pad, and that's how I write. And actually, this, so G's and the King of Clubs started with an essay I wrote, um, long story. So this is a Jeeves and Worcester novel. The idea came, obviously, through Donald Trump, because all ideas now have to come via Donald Trump, because this is the world we now live in. And it actually came in 2016, when Donald Trump was a candidate there was a news story that said his former butler had gone onto Facebook and suggested that President Obama be assassinated, which is not only ill-mannered, it's also, you know, a federal crime to call for the assassination. So the Secret Service sort of investigated and, you know, drew a line under it. But I thought, well, this is fantastic. There aren't many times butlers hit the headlines, and what would Jeeves say? So this prompted me to write a little short story about Jeeves and Worcester meeting Trump and his butler at Brinkley Court, and there's a game of croquet. And I wrote this on a train from Trenton to um, New York Penn Station on the New Jersey Transit, which is the least glamorous, sorry, people of New Jersey, but it really is, you know, on a rattly train in an uncomfortable 1970s brown leather folded seat. It was awful with people, you know, shouting and playing their iPhones at full volume because people don't wear headphones anymore for reasons that baffle me. Anyway, so the answer is that's where I wrote this story and that's how the start of it. That was written on a, you know, written on a train on a laptop scrunched up. This notion that there has to be perfect conditions for writing, I think, sets a lot of people back. Because who has a perfect life? It's a bit like, you know, when you read these magazines, these sort of interior design magazines, you instantly feel like a, you know, a terrible slumming slob. But of course, no one really lives like this. The only people who do live like this, who I know, are people who have lots of money and staff. So let's assume we don't have lots of money and staff because we don't. Bertie Worcester himself. Bertie, well, precisely, Bertie would, exactly, I'm sure it's very neat and tidy at three Berkeley mansions. But this notion that there has to be perfect conditions for writing, I think, puts a lot of people off. And it, the perfect condition is when you have five minutes and an idea. And you can be, you know, I can be on the tube, on my iPhone, on the notes thing. Sometimes I'm walking down the street and I have an idea, but I don't want to write it down because it's going too fast in my head. I'll phone myself, leave myself a voicemail and dictate it to myself. This is notion that writing is this sacred sanctified act and sometimes it is i suppose but it's normally just a question of like when you have an idea just nab it with whatever kind of butterfly net you have i guess the counter to that is and now i know that you are several books down in other forms but this is your debut novel yes i guess the counter could be is that if you were five six seven eight novels down the line maybe you would have streamlined your process well this is my 12th book um, it's actually probably my 20th something book because all of the miscellanies I also wrote American versions for, the Almanacs I wrote American versions for. So, And also all the other books up until Jews and the King of Clubs, I've typeset myself. 
which changes the dynamic because I would write not into Word or not onto Notes, but I would write into InDesign, into the page layouts. I don't know if any of your listeners do this, but it's actually quite an interesting way of writing to write into a page layout rather than just... If people are scared of the blank page, my advice would be fold it up, fold it up, fold it up again and write in that very small space. Because writing... This notion of thinking outside the box, again, I think does tremendous harm. The only way to think is inside a box. And the Ulipians, I don't know if you're an Ulipo fan, but um, Ulipo is this sort of philosophical... Uh, slightly Dada-esque writing theory that would create constraints. So Georges Perec famously wrote um, a novel without, in French without using the letter E, um, which is in itself glorious. And then Gilbert Adair translated it into English without using the letter E. So this notion that you can write an entire novel in French and then in English without the letter E is about constraints. So, for example, small constraint, but in this book, um, P.G. Woodhouse has 1,525 quotations in the OED. So the OED cites him that many times to help explain the language and the words he, you know, we now use. 26 of these are first cited usages, as in he's the first author that they have found who wrote this word down. So either he neologized it, like Ujakam Spiff, or he probably just was the first person to hear it and write it down. So, for example, he's the first person to write cuppa, as in a cup of tea, C-U-P-P-A. And there are 26 of those, and they're in the end notes to the book. And I've got them all into the book. A small little challenge, but you think, well, why not? Why not make sure the, all these 26 first cited usages are in the book? Because it's a little game. It's a game for myself. But it's another way of saying, of constricting your options and making you think more creatively. So this is a period novel because... Um, Jeeves and Worcester, I mean, people debate the exact timing, and I don't want to get involved in a hugely complicated Talmudic debate on the timing of the novels, because there are people who know a lot more about it than me. But in my head, this book is putatively set 1931-1932. So the main research I did was not to go back and read the Woodhouse novels, because I didn't want it too fresh in my mind, because it's just too intimidating a topic. But the main research I did was to read about the language of the time and to read books of historical slang. For example, I went through the OED and looked at not only all of the quotations, that, but every single um, piece of slang that entered the OED between 1900 and 1932. And you just plow through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words, uh, quotations by writers in the same style in the same period, to look for words and phrases and cadences. Because this is a period book, um, and... There are some anachronisms deliberately. There's a spinal tap joke, um, if you're looking for spinal tap jokes, uh, which pleasingly my proofreader didn't spot and wanted to correct, but um, you can't correct Nigel Tufnell's grammatical usage, so we kept that in. Um, But the period language really helped because often odd words and phrases just spark an idea and just helps you, you know, turn the corner of a difficult sentence or, you know, it just inspires you to think about that time and well what would they say and then it becomes a creative challenge which rather than how am I going to get out of this which is a sort of practical difficulty does that make any sense makes perfect sense so we're talking Woodhouse um a comic author well an author I should say that's just been revered for the last century absolutely this is your debut novel I know it's insane why well partly 
Yes, very good question. Why? Because, so I explained how the, the idea came through the Trump's Butler oh, well, and this piece. Well, I guess my question should be, what happened next? Well, so, well, that's the thing. So not, while writing it on the New Jersey transit between Trenton and um, Penn Station, it was the most fun to write. And it just sort of flowed and I didn't have to think about it. And for me, when writing is hard or any project feels impenetrable, it's often a sign that I'm doing the wrong thing. And when I'm on the phone, you know, getting a commission or talking about it, and I'm already essentially just writing it, then I know it's right. When it doesn't feel like work or walking through treacle, then you know it's right. And often, not everything's easy, but if it's really difficult, I mean, you can't, and your heart sinks at the idea of it, don't do it. I mean, this is... Or I mean, sometimes you have to do it because, you know, bills to be paid. But if it doesn't feel right, like combing your hair the wrong way, then it's probably the wrong project. Anyway, this was such fun to write and it got published and people didn't hate it. I was expecting an avalanche of criticism because how dare you? And a couple of what I would consider Woodhouse aficionados and experts communicated that they thought, actually, I'd done a relatively non-horrific job. <laughs> and that inspired me to carry on and I thought well all right well what can we do with Jeeves and Worcester that hasn't been done that takes it into a different place there were three options really one was to write another one in the series but there are 11 novels and 35 short stories and that seemed to be supernumerary so that world I thought had been explored the other option was to have young Bertie Bertie is a schoolboy, say. The problem about that is he couldn't smoke, he couldn't drink, he couldn't drive. Why would he have a butler? What about his parents? And what about the First World War? Well, I, th- I think the, the, the issue with that is we we know the point at which Bertie meets Jeeves. Ah, actually, you know what? I hadn't even thought of that. We also know the point in which he meets Jeeves. So we would have to create an entire junior Jeeves. It wouldn't work. But it was really his parents in the First World War. But you actually you raise a very good temporal <laughs> issue, which is... Uh, another good reason. So yes, I'm going to add that to my list. So young Bertie, let's not do that. And then you could do contemporary Bertie, set him in Mayfair today. But who would want to read about the doings daring of some evil, unpleasant oligarch with a butler in Mayfair? I mean, you could, you'd hate him on sight. And the one thing you don't do with Bertie is hate him. Um, so the kind of the, the the inspiration was to take the world of Sunday Uplands at Brinkley Court and Berkeley Mansions and twist it five degrees to starboard. And Bertie accidentally becomes a British spy. So it becomes an espionage story, but not a real espionage story, a very Woodhousean espionage story where there's espionage, sure, but there's also, you know, auctions to be fixed and club members to be blackballed and, you know, a new kind of condiment to be cooked up by Aunt Dahlia. So there's all sorts of normal Woodhousean madness, but with this spy element thrown in for fun. And then how are you plotting it and how are you planning it? Because, so I've never chatted, well, it's not slightly. It's not exactly true, but I've never really chatted to an author who, whose main f- work of fiction is with a character that's other than their own. When you have that, then that's another element added to the mix because you're writing what you think the character is, you're writing the plot that you've come up with, yeah. uh, and you're writing what Plum himself, everything that he's given you, 90 books or whatever, of, yeah. of how you, you're meant to write if you're him. Uh, how did you go about plotting and planning this story then with all of that in mind? 
Well, I actually constructed a little graphic for myself because I'm essentially a frustrated typographer and graphic designer. So I created this sort of graphic because all the action takes place over the course of essentially a week, which is unusual and not the way the books normally work. It's very structured and there's a lot of plot. There's a lot of action, way more plot than there is in the traditional books. That's one of the things I've changed. I just think we have a greater appetite for action now. And just to sort of go back, there were some skepticism, I think entirely reasonable, that I wasn't a novelist. And when the estate and, you know, my lovely publishers entrusted me with this, there was a sense of, well, he's never written a novel before. He's not a novelist. Can he do it? And I actually didn't approach this as a novelist, and I don't really consider myself a novelist. So I think a novel, with a capital N, should be like a PhD. And the definition of a PhD in order to get a PhD, you have to introduce new knowledge into a field, right? You can't just, it can't be a tour of the horizon. It can't be a rehash. You have to have something new. And the newness is absolutely central. And I think great literature is something that says something new about the human condition. And that was not what I do. What I was doing was creating this amazing, I hope, Heath Robinson machine with all the levers and pulleys and lengths of knotted rope that Woodhouse had left lying around his hundreds of books and to construct this fabulous machine that was the funniest and most elaborate that I could. So the end result was a novel and there's some of me in the book but I don't have any grand statements about you know the human condition to communicate and so it really was much more of like a deadly serious game and it was like solving writing it was like solving a thousand crossword clues a day because every word has to be right, every sentence has to be right, every phrase has to be right, every syllable has to be right, every name has to be right. Every time you create a name, it's got to fit, it's got to work, it's got to not only sort of resonate with the originals but feel crisp and fresh. And that, that was the, that, it was like a grand game rather than a sort of novelizing experience. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll be back with more from Ben in just a sec. Also on the way, uh, we've got that top writing tip that may change the way that you work forever. Today, it's coming from one of the most successful authors still writing. 
Uh, first, I want to give you just a very quick reminder that the best place that you can show your support for this show, if you're enjoying what we're doing, is by leaving us a review over on the iTunes podcast store, if that's how you're listening to us. Uh, because it helps so much with the slightly strange way that their chart works. No one really understands it. All that we know is if you leave us a review, it helps out massively. So that way, other aspirant writers who may need advice can get some tips from some of the best authors around. They can find our show and it's all down to you. I don't know, maybe you want to say which authors that you've enjoyed us chatting to. You've got a piece of advice that you want to share that's stuck with you. Maybe you've got ideas for guests that I can chat to. All you need to do to leave all of that is bundle it up and stick it on the iTunes podcast store in a nice review. So this week's top writing tip that may change the way you work forever, it's from one of the most successful authors uh, that's working today, I think. Cecilia Ahern, she was on the show last week, you may have heard it. She was talking about her brand new book, Raw. Also, she mentioned what it's like working on short stories when you're used to writing a 300 plus page novel. And we found out how she coped with the success after her debut novel, P.S. I Love You, became a proper movie. And she stuck around at the end of the main interview to share one little tip. And it's all about why you shouldn't care at all what other people think. Hello, I'm Cecilia Hearn. My new book is called Roar. And my advice to you would be, first of all, don't take any advice. (laughs) But if you're going to take any, I think it's really important to write what moves you and not what you think people want to write. I think you should write with the voice that you hear that you think with. Um, because nobody thinks like you, so therefore nobody will write like you. You will be immediately unique and uh, original. So write with that inner voice that you have. I hope you enjoyed that. Massive thank you to Cecilia Ahern for coming on the show last week. If you want to catch up with it, you can find that interview and all the episodes that we've done so far of the show over at writersroutine.com. Right, let's get back to the meat Uh, in the episode this week. Our chat with Ben Schott, all about his debut novel, which is an homage to P.G. Woodhouse. It's called Jeeves and the King of Clubs, and it sees Bertie Wooster, you know, bumbling Bertie Wooster, becoming a spy. Actually, Ben doesn't think he's too bumbling at all. We'll talk about why in just a sec. Now, before we get into the second part, I just need to share. I think Ben is one of the most smart people I've ever met. He's not got that brash, smug, in-your-face intellect. It's just that you can almost see his mind and you can hear his brain whirring at around a thousand miles an hour. Now, we'll try and keep up with him as we talk about how he dived into the intimidating but honestly breathtaking world of Woodhouse. Uh, We chat about his plot and we get into a little bit of a balmy, actually, a tiny disagreement over the way we both see Woodhouse's plots. That's on the way. And we get back into this second half with a little bit more of the planning machine that he invented. You know, we know that he's a designer as well as a writer, but how did inventing like a thought machine actually help him get his story down? This was a schematic and it was, imagine it was linear. It actually sort of went, was folded. It was this fold, there might be one actually, the publishers have one, one in this very office. Um, And it folded out. And it was really done partly for me and partly to sell the idea because I just wanted something that stood out and sort of felt different. Um, and I've always created little samplers of my work. So the original miscellany, which people may or may not know me for, I actually was a Christmas card that got expanded into a book that I printed privately, 50. Not self-published. I literally printed it out of fun to give to my friends with no sense of publishing it. And then so I made the book myself. Um, 
I've always done little blads and samplers. Schottenfreude was a little blad and a sampler, which because it's one of those things, you want to just hand it to someone. If you're explaining, you're losing. You want to hand them the idea of the book, and they look at it, and they go, ooh, and then you've got them. So I've always made something. So I thought just out of a talisman of good luck, I would make a little thing. But actually, it was very useful because the action takes place Wednesday to Wednesday, and there's a lot of action, and things happen all throughout the day. And you suddenly realize, ah, okay, on Friday, uh, he comes out of the tailors and he can't be at Brinkley Court till after midnight. So what's he going to do between that time? Ah, well, hmm, okay, so he should go to a gambling club. So then I did some research into gambling clubs and then I wrote this wonderful, really fun scene, wonderful to me, uh, fun scene about this nomadical gambling club called The Nomadical, based on a true, true stories of um, gangs who would rent houses in Mayfair on short-term leases and turn them into illegal gambling clubs for three or four months. And then people would come, and then they would clear out, empty them, and then hire another house. So they were always ahead of the law. And this is a true story. And this is, there are books of this in the history of gambling and the history of London. It's fascinating. Anyway, again, back to the original research. Um, I've lost the thread of your question and my answer. No, that's fine. We were, so we're talking about your, your, your plotting with the graphics. Yes. I, I guess you speaking of the gambling club, it then moves on to how much... Did you know about what was coming next when you sat down to write? Did you have the beginning, the middle, and the end all sewn up before you started typing? I had the beginning, I had the end, and I had sort of set pieces. So scenes, you know, action scenes. So there's a chase scene, there's a farce, there's a sort of, you know, three-room, classic three-room, well, one-room with three-door farce in there. Um, there's a scene I wanted to do about a club table. There's a scene about blackballing and members clubs. There were lots of scenes that I wanted. Um, and then as I wrote, in order to have it taking place, you know, from Wednesday to Wednesday and having every day feel like the same length, I suddenly thought, ah, okay, there's a bit of a gap here. I need to have something fun to put in here. And the joy of writing for Jeeves and Worcester is half of it is just finding out where to put them. There's a scene where Bertie, for one awkward afternoon, finds himself running a ladies' lingerie shop. <laughs> and, I mean, it just, you know, once he's there, it everything just, it just writes itself because it's just glorious. And so the trick is finding somewhere absurdly glorious and funny to put him and then hoping it just sort of emerges. And with Bertie, it always does. I can't believe that we're, like, over 20 minutes into the chat and we've not really mentioned language yet. So the, the the joy of Woodhouse and the reason he is so revered a hundred years later um, is his use of language, yeah. is the way he puts one word after the other. Earlier on, you were speaking of this gigantic machine that you feel that you've constructed to get the book down. Um, talk to me about using words, um, how you stuck closely to Woodhouse's pitch, his tone, his voice, his rhythm, yeah, and then used it yourself. Well, it is it is a rhythm. It's absolutely a rhythm. That's the key word. And I think what I think people who sort of don't know a lot about Woodhouse or maybe sort of seen it from like the Jeeves and Worcester, the Fry and Laurie, they sort of is. I think they sort of think everyone's an upper class twit, mm. and they really aren't. I mean, there are upper class people, and some of them are twits. But even it's just it's too simple. And so actually for me, it was about realizing that every single character actually has a unique and very characteristic voice. So Bertie speaks in a certain way, Jeeves speaks in a certain way, Aunt Dahlia speaks in a certain way, Anatole the French chef, Spode the fascist dictator. Every single character has a voice 
and a vocabulary and a cadence and a rhythm that they use. Aunt Delia is permanently exasperated and speaks with the volume of a of a of a, of a huntswoman, you know, jumping over a fence in pursuit of hounds in pursuit of a fox. That's her. Jeeves is permanently slightly disappointed, I think, and sort of cautious and wise. Um, Anatole, the French chef, is constantly mangling his words. So actually, for me, the trick was to find each of the characters' voice, vocabulary, and language and try and capture it. Now, the only voice I didn't aspire to capture is Woodhouse's, because it can't be done. You can't write. People say, how do you write like Woodhouse? And the answer is, you can't. And to write like him would be, I think, to descend into pastiche or parody. What I wanted to try and do was to write in parallel. So rather than write Woodhouse, I write me. Um, because you, he he creates these... He, there's a psychiatric term called night's move thinking, and people with certain types of dementia have this. So they start on subject A, and then they start talking about subject C. And it seems to make no sense. But actually what they've done is, like a knight moves in chess, they jump and then they turn, they've missed out B. And if you go back and you work out B, it makes sense. So it's just that they go from A to C. Now, actually, this is what I think Woodhouse does in these glorious similes he has, is he takes you down a road and then he sharp left in image and you find yourself, you, you just laugh out loud because you can't help yourself because your brain has this sort of trick played on it that you're suddenly thinking of a different image where you were thinking of something else originally. Anyway, that's, I think, his genius. And... There was nothing worse than overreaching and failing. So I just didn't play that game. So again, all of the characters I tried to give a voice to, except for Woodhouse, who I respectfully just left on his plinth, as you should be. He's known for his, as you say, knights-moving metaphors and similes, and you've got some in there. How much thought did you give to those that were coming? Did you sit there, did, were you frantically scratching your head trying to think so, I, read, I read one earlier very quickly uh, it's in the first few pages when I was just briefly flick, flicking through um, it's something someone does something with like the evil um, uh, consideration of an Australian leg spinner ah yes polishing glasses with the malevolent something of an Australian leg spinner you've done it much better well, justice than me uh, well I mean that was fun because uh, we're also roughly around the Bodyline series, and we know Bertie likes cricket. So there's also a Bodyline reference if you're interested in your period cricket of the time, which I am, <laughs> because why not? So that was a slight reference to that. Here's the thing. These famous similes, when they came to me and they, I felt they were natural, I put them in. As soon as I was thinking, ooh, how could I make this Woodhouseian, I backed away. And so there was, you know, there's one which is... Um, uh, he flicked his lighter meaningfully, like an arsonist in a hayloft, and that just that just came. But whenever there was a moment of like, oh, how do I make this more Woodhouseian? I knew that was when it would became parody or pastiche. I don't think you can write to please an audience. I don't think you can write in theory. I think you have to write something that you find amusing. And I don't know who said this, but the only good thing ever to be written by a committee is the King James Bible. You know, you've got to write to amuse yourself. And as soon as you try to be funny, I don't think it works. And you can always tell when a book is dashed off for, you know, profit or money or, you know, to fill a gap in the market. It never quite works. The original, something that really feels like it's been written for pure pleasure, like an actor. When you, you watch something on TV, you know when the cast is having fun. You can just feel it. And you know when they're and you can feel it when they're just, you know, serious server and they're just going through the motions. Although we've just spent quite a long time talking about language and 
contrary, I think, to what you said earlier about plot, I think Woodhouse's plots are massively underappreciated. Huh. Not necessarily in Jeeves, but if you read his Blanding stories particularly, yeah, you've got there the absolute blueprint of what happens in modern sitcom. Mm-hmm. So you've got many, many, many different conversion plot lines. A, B, C, they all come together in a nice, really tightly packaged, hilarious D. How much were you considering the different threads of stuff that was going on when you came to your ending? A lot. And there are lots of threads. I mean, there are, I haven't counted the plot lines, there's at least six. And I very much wanted the book to come to an end and it comes to an end in quite a formal, traditional set piece ending, but then to have a twist and a dot, dot, dot. So you want to be satisfied that all of the loose ends have been tied up. And you're like, oh, that's why he mentioned that earlier. Everything, you know, I don't think I'm giving anything away. So I want it to be satisfying and feel like a conventional novel. And this is not about twisting the form. No, 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 this is about respecting the form. But also to have a little thing where you left and you were like, ooh, that's interesting. I wonder where this might go next. So, yes, that was the... Um, I like the idea of the sitcom thing. That's interesting. I, I'm i not sure P.G. Woodhouse would agree with you about the plots. He was very proud of his plots, but also very worried about his plots. And if you read the letters, you know, he sort of says to friends, you know, I'll send a fiver to anyone who can send me a plot. I mean, partly just because he wrote so much, he just ate through plots. So... I, if I'm critical of Woodhouse, which I, I'm not, but I think probably his plots are his the weakest part of his genius, which is still a very high bar, um, because I think his language carries it through. I think often, you know, a long book relies on a short amount of plot, but also that was also the the period of the time, and we're used to you know box sets and stuff has to happen. Uh, one of the reasons that people fall in and fall in love with the world of Woodhouse is because it's so warm, so welcoming. Mm-hmm. It feels like a nice, cosy jumper around you on a cold winter's night um is it the same writing it do you want to immediately dive back in oh it is without doubt i mean this is book 12 and this is the most fun i've ever had with words i mean it is it's it was you know as i said i handed it in two months early partly because i wanted to stop poking at it and but it was also it was I was sort of bereft. You're like it was it was it was leaving this world and these lovely characters and the fun you can have. I mean, it was sort of heartbreaking. Um, it was such fun to write. I mean, it's I I can't explain it because partly I love the characters and I love the world and I love being able to take that and then add in new characters. I mean, for example, one of the other changes I've made. So stylistically, it's faster. There's more action. There's more dialogue. Second of all, Bertie's a little smarter in this book. And I can give you an elaborate explanation as to why. Can you give me a 30-second uh, explanation as to why? First of all, I think he's smarter than people think. I think Hugh Laurie, who was superb, played him quite buffoonish. Second of all, why would Jeeves hang out with this absolute idiot for, you know, 60 years of novels? That's not going to happen. Third of all, Bertie's intelligence also depends on who he's standing next to. So compared to Jeeves, he's a moron. But then again, so are we all. Mm-hmm. Compared to Art Dahlia, he's about on par. They parry. And compared to the Drones Club mob, he's an absolute genius. So it's not as simple. But the absolute key, and I think the driving force of the Worcester novel specifically is, Worcester's meant to be this bumbling buffoon. Okay, but he's also the first person author. So it's written from his perspective. Mm-hmm. So this bumbling fool is also the greatest crafter of comic fiction in the English language. And that's the tension. You keep being told he's an idiot, but he keeps, you know, being 
stunningly eloquent. If he was actually an idiot and wrote a book like an idiot from an idiot's POV, you you wouldn't read more than three pages. So that, I think, is the fundamental tension that drives the books and constantly means that you're fascinated by it. The other shift, which is the beginning of this very elaborate paragraph, is there is a strong, sassy, if that's a, a Woodhousean word, um, elegant, eloquent, and witty female lead, which I wanted to put in because the, the women in the Worcester world tend to be of three types. They tend to be simpering fools like Madeleine Bassett or harridans like Florence Cray or aunts, which is a subspecies of harridan. And I wanted to have a female lead character who was absolutely splendid and spick and span and superior to Bertie in some ways and who Jeeves didn't absolutely curl his lip up at completely and was grudgingly forced to admit she might actually be, you know, quite a good egg. So that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. A huge thanks to Ben Shot, his book Jeeves and the King of Clubs. It's out now. You can get everything more that you need to know about it on our website, which is writersroutine.com. And while you're there, it's the best place for you to send us a message over on the contact form and you can find all of the old episodes too. And while you're feeling generous towards the show, uh, give us a follow on Twitter, on Instagram. And please, if you want to support us, leave a review for Writer's Routine over on the iTunes podcast store. Remember, we've teamed up for the next few months with the Writer's Block Virtual Book Festival to give you the chance to win $2,000 worth of book marketing prizes. You'll get a book trailer made for you. You'll get help from editors. You'll get uh, uh, reviews and interviews uh, with some book YouTubers. And you'll also get the chance to come on this very show and explain to me how you wrote the whole thing. To find out more about that, search for The Novelette on Twitter. Uh, She'll give you all the details. And remember, if you head to literatureandlatte.com, you can make your working day so much easier by saving 20% on the software Scrivener, which I think is one of the best writing softwares around. And I'll see you next week. We're back with an incredibly deep, um, thoughtful, kind of philosophical chat uh, with a fantastic Irish crime author. And I'm very excited for it. And I'll see you again next week on Writer's Routine. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.